Hello. This is Everything's Political, and I'm your host, Junius Williams. On Everything's Political, we examine the hidden side, the unpredictable side, the underexplored aspects of politics. And of course, when we talk about politics, we're talking about power. We're talking about the power that's implicit or explicit in the things that we examine. So today, we're going to talk about race and racism. How could we not talk about racism in America, given all that's going on? So I want to start out by recognizing that there are examples of prejudice and examples of bias that are not so hidden. We asked some of our listeners to give examples of what they had experienced. And inevitably, most people talked about this individual impact of their racist experience, their experience with racism. One person said, in the first grade, a white teacher used to keep me inside when the students went to lunch. I would eat with her. I always felt it was because I was lighter skinned. That feeling has stayed with me. Then somebody else said, I grew up in the segregated South, so racism was a way of life. First time it stung was in the seventh grade in New Jersey. Late 1970s, I was on the bus with my grandmother in Elizabeth, New Jersey. A little Caucasian girl got on with her mother, grabbed her head and started shouting, niggas, niggas, niggas everywhere. Her mother grabbed her arm and got off that bus with great quickness. So I'm sure that our guests can talk about that. I have two sets. First, my daughters who are in their 40s, and then my sons who are in their 20s. First, we have Camille, who is a health professional, health management professional. Second is my daughter, Junia, who is an attorney at a local college. Third is my son, Junius, who is a consultant at a company. Fourth is my son, Che, who is a filmmaker. Now, each one of them occupies a certain niche. Child one and child three are 20 years apart. Child two and four are 20 years apart. So what I'm also doing, I'm doing a scientific but not so scientific survey because I want to find out if maybe the answers to this issue are different for people who are 20 years older and people who are 40 years older, focusing on not just what I call smaller examples of racism, although they can be just as hurtful, but I want to focus on the bigger examples of racism, the institutional racism. So let's see if we can agree on a definition. Distinguish between individual racism or prejudice and institutional racism. Let's start with you, Counselor. Sure. So at the individual level, individual racism is really just that, how particular people over time have developed particular biases and prejudices about others based off of the, you know, an individual's race or ethnicity. And they may or may not act upon those biases in their daily lives. At the institutional level, it's more systemic. And what we're talking about at that point are the various institutions in our, you know, country, including financial institutions, criminal justice system, housing, educational systems, employment systems, where the institutions were really built based off of various forms of biases and in turn have enacted practices and policies that perpetuate those biases in some fashion. You agree with that, Camille? I do. I think um, 
each definition um, accurately describes how we all are here today, um, whether it's opportunities that have been denied or selected for us simply based on who we are. So when did both of you or either of you become aware of that larger dimension of how race affects our everyday lives, whether we meet prejudiced individual whites or not? For me, um, I can give an example. When I was in high school, I was a junior, and that's when, you know, they start talking to you about college. I mean, coming from two parents who graduated college, there was no question I was going to college, but I can distinctly remember my guidance counselor at the time pushing business schools or the fancy finishing schools upon me and my classmates who were Black. It was almost as if the school didn't believe that we could shoot for the stars or even apply or that we weren't worthy uh, as far as some of these uh, four-year institutions of higher learning. So I always had a problem with that. Like, why don't you believe I'm ready for college? And it, it's something that's underlying. I watched strategically how she steered certain students towards whatever higher education path she felt that they were fit for. And to me, that speaks to systemic racism. How about you, Jania? The first time I remember instance of racism. When you, yeah, when you first learned about it. And yeah, when you first experienced it. Well, yeah, Camille's example certainly was one that I had similar experience with. But I actually recall one before that. And Camille re- may remember when we were, what, like t- I was 10, you were 12. We were in Children's Express. Yes. a news reporting organization. And we were in the host family sent to Massachusetts to cover some event or to attend a conference. I don't remember the specifics. What I do remember is we stayed with a host family in some suburb of Boston, entrusting this family to take care of us. And this was their refused to let us go upstairs. And so we had to use a half bathroom to wash up. We weren't allowed to use the shower. It was just a very odd phenomenon. And I don't think Camille or I fully appreciated the dynamics of that until we told you and mommy about it. And you both instantaneously reacted to that and were hurt that we experienced that and horrified. Um, this notion that you were in latent or maybe even blatant way to subordinate us in some fashion. And that was real. I do what, did, what, did, what did we do as parents to fortify you uh, against the impact of that big kind of racism? I think that um, you and mommy did a great job at preparing us for racism and what that experience would be like. Um, I think just by simply being honest with us when we were little girls and helping us to understand that the world in some ways will always see us differently and not know how to treat us or treat us fairly based on that. So it prepared us for when we had moments where we experienced what I considered overt racism. Yes, it still hurt, helped but knowing that you loved us enough to tell us the truth, it was sort of a... When, when, whenever we had to come up against it. Jania? Multifaceted preparation in my mind. So on one hand, right, I would agree with that. And I would also say, first and foremost, you made sure we knew who we were as Black people and as African people. And we knew our history. And we were proud of that history because we needed to understand that there was nothing wrong with who we were and who we are, because that's really how you build up enough armor and enough resistance to any racism, whether at the individual or institutional level that comes your way. So we read our, remember you bought us that African-American history encyclopedia that we read that encyclopedia religiously. You bought us happy to be nappy t-shirts. You took us to rallies. You took us to hear John Henrik Clark speak. You took us to hear Stokely Carmichael. We just wanted free food, admittedly, but we were there and we were listening to these legends speak in real time about our heritage. And then you also did what Camille said. You were honest with us and you never let us think that just because we were middle class or a bit more privileged than other people who look like us and were privileged to attend private schools and the um in higher you know good going to higher education not once did you ever give us this notion or this false belief that all of that lineage in those halls we would travel would insulate us from racism and in fact in some ways it may actually amplify what we experienced so i would say it was a combination of all of those lessons 
Remember that time we went to see Nelson Mandela and Winnie Mandela? I'll never forget it. And we sat right in the middle of 125th Street and 8th Avenue. Yeah. And you guys, you guys didn't want to go. Oh, oh, daddy, I don't want to go to that. Oh, but that was good. What a moment. Mm. Well, there was a promise of a nice meal and dining out in New York attached to that. In hindsight, I'm sure. <laughs> but yes, right. I mean, now when I think back at that and to think that I actually almost opted out of that experience, it's, it's mind blowing. Right. That would have never happened again in life. And I don't know right. how you did it, Daddy, but we started at the back of the crowd. And next thing you know, we were like almost in front of the dais. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think what stuck out for me was Betty Shabazz had recognized Winnie Mandela with a plaque. And Winnie Mandela just assumed this was, oh, someone giving her something nice. But the moment she realized that that was the widow of Malcolm X, the way that they embraced each other was such a moment. And I'm glad, I'm grateful that we were part of that. That was mm. 30 years ago. Yeah. You know, you know, your daddy had to work some magic every now and then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's another I, podcast topic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> or, or something anyway. So right now I'm talking to the two boys. I'm talking to Junius Onome and Che Adolphus. Hello, boys. Hi, Uh, Daddy. (laughs) Great to see you. (laughs) Great to see you, too. Let's see if we can't jump right into this thing. I want to talk about Prince Harry as an example of uh, the distinction I want to make between the individual form of racism and the institutional form of racism, the the hidden side. Prince Harry, this was on NBC News, Mm -hmm. October 27th of this year. Prince Harry says, ignorance is no excuse for unconscious bias. The onus is on you to go out and educate yourself because ignorance is no longer an excuse, Prince Harry says. He went on to say it took him many years and the experience of living with his wife, Meghan Markle, to understand how his privileged upbringing shielded him from the reality of unconscious racism. Now, I like Prince Harry. I like Prince Harry because if there's anybody who came to grips with that privilege, it's him. He left the House of Windsor because of the love he had for his wife and his children. So you can't blame him for that. But we can say that Prince Harry is on the way to a non-racist lifestyle. But can we say that about the House of Windsor? Aren't things just the same as they were when he left within the House of Windsor, where his grandmother, the queen, continues to be the queen, So what impact will his non-racist behavior have on the institution that is the House of Windsor? Y'all want to talk about that? I think the impact it could have on the House of Windsor, we don't know because, you know, Harry and William, you know, William won't be king for another 50 years, maybe 40 years, 30 years, you know. Um, And William is is his older brother. And we don't know what's going to happen with their, you know, because within this institution, it's also a familial and personal relationship as well. So you you think that maybe the individual stance can lead to some education, which may eventually change the House of Windsor over the next 40 or 50 years? I think like individuals who take a stance in the way that Harry and Meghan have can push national dialogue further. Whether, whether the House of Windsor becomes anti-racist, I mean, that, you know, put a TBD on that one. But I think the, what, what they're doing is starting a dialogue that's reshifting, reshaping the narrative around racism in Britain, which is a conversation that they are not as far along on as we are across the, across the pond here. So you think we are having that discussion Have we really been having that conversation about systemic racism or just apologies for individual racist acts by some individuals? 
Well, I think we have different language now. I don't think the terms systemic racism or institutional violence or any of these terms that originated in, in the academy um, were there in the same way that they are now, right? I think in in the 60s during the civil rights movement, I think the language was a lot clearer and simpler because I think in some ways the problems were simpler. But now there's a whole set of language to describe the same conversations that, that I think have been happening already. Now, when did both of you first become aware of systemic racism? I think I knew it existed, but I think I didn't really probably see it until high school, until, you know, I had the language and, you know, I could, you know, kind of understand and negotiate differences between institutionalized systemic. But I'm sure, you know, if I look back on my life between zero to 13, there was impact. I was impacted by systemic or institutional racism, whatever you want to call it. But I think probably 14, 15 is when I became conscious of it around. What was it that made you conscious? I couldn't tell you a specific moment, but I know around, like, just as I learned more and I grew more. I mean, I think being aware of unjust systems was something that growing up with, with you and mommy, we were always aware of. And so, again, the, the language now is very different and, and nuanced mm-hmm. and academic, but like, you know, learning about Jim Crow mm-hmm. when we were four or five from you, like, that was my first encounter with institutionalized racism, right, as a concept, you know, seeing how in impoverished black areas of Newark, there was just a consistent level of neglect and economic deprivation, right, that, that at a very clear level was was a form of institutional racism that, that we didn't need that word to, to understand what it was. It was just, it was an unjust system. And, and that was that was enough language for us to to wrap our heads around it. What did your parents do to fortify you against this institutionalized or the individual kind of racism that you, we knew you were going to encounter? I think just giving us, you know, confidence in ourselves, understanding of our surroundings, of, you know, who we are and our identities um, as African-American and as Jamaican people for Genius and I. And understanding, you know, how to how to navigate that in a, you know, in a white world. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with Che, especially on the, the self-belief, and not only self-belief, but also just pride in being black, pride in everything that, that comes with it, I think, is something that you and mommy instilled in both of us. And whether it's our music, our spirituality, our culture, our, our art, all of that fortifies you against the very toxic messages that the rest of the world likes to spew out. Professor John Henry Clark, one of my favorite folks, he said, the cruelest thing slavery and colonization did to destroy the Africans was to destroy their memory of what they were before foreign contact. What do you think about that? Would you agree? Well, I I, I disagree with the premise. I don't think that the Africans' memory of Africa was completely taken from them, right? I think that they carried it through, and, you know, whether they know exactly where they came from, but it's a different story, but they carried it through their music, they carried it through spirituality, they they carried their Africanness with them and, and still carry it, we as African Americans still carry that now, right? I think the coolest part of slavery was the notion that these people weren't human, right? And trying to make enslaved people internalize that, right? And having laws created that internalize that and structures that that internalize that. So I I question the premise, but I I see where he's going, I guess. But But when you say they tried to make us feel as though we weren't human, isn't that really saying that you agree with him? Uh, you, you took away language, you said their spirituality, but they took away their gods, they took away uh, the Africans' notion of nature. Doesn't that kind of amount to the same thing? Yeah, but I, but, but I mean, I think it's to say that we were completely robbed of all the memory of Africa and all the culture. I just I just don't think that that's carried out in the same way that the literal act of dehumanizing of assigning three-fifths of a person to an enslaved African. I, I think the latter is much more direct and, and 
had a much bigger impact. But you know, it it could it could be a level of of semantics there. I, I see where he, what he's saying, and I see what Junius is saying, and I think it it comes down to like Junius said that African people, you know, hid you know their quote Africanness in different things like their music, their hairstyles their dance, you know, all of these things still exist. And people, not, you know, people today might not be able to point and say, oh, you know, that comes from this part of Africa, you know, this, this you know, I'm doing this, but it still exists in your everyday life. So sure, it might rob you of your ability to point to something. But I think if anything, it made the culture more. And I think that's what's so great about Black culture today is that what you see that the culture is so able to ebb and flow throughout generations and throughout cycles. So that's why, you know, Black culture is so you know, adaptable to the digital culture age because it's had to adapt to the radio age and the television mm-hmm. age and all of these different ways of, of disseminating information. Now, I want to read something to you. This is this is on the cover of the uh, Yale Alumni Magazine. It's the July-August 2020 edition. And it's the addition right after the killing of George Floyd and the uprising that occurred when people actually watched the police execute a man in broad daylight. And this is a, a statement. I'm not so sure who wrote this, but one of the people who had written an essay inside the uh, the book here. Sometimes there's something good coming out in this magazine. And it says, as a national community, we are engaging in the periodic ritual of being surprised by the deadly force of racism when it has been with us all along. When it has been with us all along. Does that suggest some kind of permanence about the kinds of things that we've been talking about and the kinds of things that other people have experienced on a deadly basis? I think so. Ultimately, when you think about the history of our country and the fact that it was founded on one hand by merely exterminating an entire group of indigenous people, and on the other hand, enslaving and involuntarily bringing another race of people to this country, it's hard not to think there's some permanency attached to that, right? And as we talked about institutional racism, institutionalized racism, knowing that the various institutions of our country were founded in large part to protect those property interests and the property interests attached to slavery and its vestiges. So, yeah, I think now what happens is we just have a lot more cameras out here, right? Because we have people with smartphones and we have social media. So you can see real time footage of people being killed and you've got 24 hour news cycles. So it's a combination of all that stuff. But if the technology had existed years ago, we would have certainly seen that. We just see it more now. On on the issue of permanence, what do you think, Camille? I think it's um, the permanency of racism is as American as apple pie. It is who we are, no matter how much people. It always blows my mind when people say this is not who we are as a country. This is exactly who we are. When you think about it. The colonizers came over here with blankets filled with smallpox and wiped out the indigenous people of this land. If you don't read about it in in books, children will never know that the native uh, people of this land have been relegated to reservations. How awful is that? It's like you just randomly chose to erase them from history. So, yes, it's it's who we are at its core. And, you know, African-Americans only make up roughly 13% of the population in this country, but look how we've had to fight every day just to still be here. And to Jania's point, I think the only thing that has really kind of saved us in a sense is that people have smartphones now, because I think the level of violence has always been there. It's just now it gets reported faster and you can see more incidents of it because people have that ability to record, but it's always been here. It's it's a part of the American fabric. So now that's see, that's that's a, a very Africanistic Americanistic response, African American response, and and I'm glad you pointed that out. You recognize the permanency of racism, but you also focus on the fact that we always find a way to surprise it, get around it, use something at our disposal 
to not dispense with it, but to blunt the impact of racism. Is, is that a peculiar phenomena of oppressed people? I think so. I think it's a survival skill that we don't even recognize that we tap into on a daily basis. A survival skill that we don't tap in on. And I listen, here's something that uh, I picked out of the New York Times. Not to, it says, this is about stress reduction, picking ways to cope. And this is a lady who's talking about accepting the present moment. Her name is Mrs. Williams. No relationship, I don't think. This is what she said. Thinking about history and those who have faced seemingly insurmountable hardship in the past can help you gain perspective, accept current events, and make plans to pursue change. My ancestors had to prepare themselves over and over again for moving toward a freedom that was nowhere in sight, said Ms. Williams, referring to Black Americans. We prepare for life as it unfolds, not our ideal image of it. That is literally the only path forward. Does that make you happy to hear that kind, those kind of words? Because I think what you all were saying embodies some or all of that. No, it doesn't make me happy. It makes me sad that we've in some ways accepted that this is the cards we're dealt, but somehow we, we make it work because we have no other choice. We can't give up. I refuse to. I have two nephews that we have to lay a path for. And if we if we live in a state of defeat, they won't have anything to hope for. So it's just like, yep, baby, there are parts of life that are going to absolutely hurt. And I wish I could take the pain away. But you know what? You were God created you for a reason. You have a purpose. And so we're going to fight this fight together. But it is sad when to hear it the way that you just read that is quite sad. But look at what we've accomplished in spite of all of that. So what makes you sad is the fact that we have to do it. But don't you feel emboldened and empowered that there is a way out of this? I do. But perhaps for me, I'm a bit desensitized because of what I see on television almost every day. Janiel, how does it make you feel? Yeah, I was reflecting a bit as Camille spoke and as I thought more about the quote. I do feel a bit more empowered in the sense that we know, as we've been discussing during this session, the institutions we're surrounded by were never designed to make space for people like us and never really designed to help people like us thrive. In my mind, yeah, we should be empowered to recognize that, to figure out, as Audre Lorde once said, right, you figure out how to use the tools. So let's learn that. And then we've got to figure out how we can build our own systems to sustain us. And that, in my mind, is the ultimate way in the ultimate coping mechanism. And we haven't been as successful, admittedly, because we're always swimming against Mm -hmm. the current, because we have far less wealth in our communities than white people. And as we know, we can build systems when you've got wealth and power and access to things. But yeah, I think we should constantly continue to figure out ways to not just cope, and but thrive in the existing infrastructure, but then also figuring out ways to dismantle it and to build new ones. And that's where there's some strength. And that's how our people have survived all these generations, figuring out ways to do what we can with the status quo and, and chipping away as we can with each victory, whether you're using the courts whether you're out there on the streets marching, whether you are pushing people through higher education so they can obtain as many degrees so that they can learn those schools and use them. So you have to do a combination of all those things. I want to read something else to you. As a national community, we are engaging in the periodic ritual of being surprised by the deadly force of racism when it has been with us all along. Doesn't that say that racism up to this point is permanent? Are you asking us if if we think racism is permanent? In general, to that statement, but yes, along the way, you got to answer that too. I, I see this moment as being 
Well, so first of all, yes, up until now, racism has been an ever-present feature of the American psyche and experience, right? And it's changed, and I think it thinks if there has obviously been progress and improvement, but it, but racism has has been has been with us. But I but I do think that in this moment, right, we're seeing a major reckoning with these kinds of conversations, not just at sort of the level of Black people's lived experiences or sort of the most radical folks, right? But it's becoming more mainstream to have these types of conversations. My firm yesterday had its, we had a a day-long anti-racist training, right? And there was a lot of education about the history of Jim Crow, about the genocide of the Native Americans, about redlining, about all the things that you know, that I've known and, and have studied, but it was very clear, especially for many of my, my white colleagues, that this was very new for them and they were being exposed in a way that they hadn't before. And so that that's what I think makes this moment very different than others. It's that level of mass engagement. But but let's go back to Prince Harry. What, what he said is similar to what you were describing. We got to make sure we rid ourselves personally, individually, of racist thinking, but does that change the institution? Is that level of conversation going to change the institutions of slavery, the the banks that don't lend the loans, the housing industries that don't sell to Black people, the police who kill with impunity? Yeah. Well, it has to, yeah, it has to, it has to start I mean, it's a both and type thing, right? I mean, you have to have individual consciousness and you have to have institutions. But if you if you can engage the sort of passive white majority on these these issues that they might not even be thinking about actively, especially in in large corporations that can influence institutions, then that's how you 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 start to raise that awareness and and begin to create change. And his company is an institution itself. So them having it is, you know, an institution trying to combat individual racism. So let's just say, you know, there was no racist cops or there was no you know, racist bankers in an ideal world. That impacts institutions. If you have people who are committed to anti-racism behind seats of power in institution, institutions that can rid institutions and systems of racism. So it's, it has to start on the individual level. You can't target the, you know, we want to we want to make blank company not racist. But if the people who are there working are racist, um, right. un, yeah, then then there there's there's no point. And also, I think in order to rid racism, you have to rid, you know, its cousins as well. You know, classism, homophobia, sexism, transphobia, all these other ways that that go towards um, limiting marginalized people are all a part of it. So I think a lot of times, and I think also in this moment are like the idea of intersectionality is more and more important and identifying every person has a different walk and to just point, oh, you know, we're going to deal with your blackness. Well, I'm also poor and I'm also a sex worker or I'm also gay. We can't hope to combat and target just one thing. It has to be a whole, a whole idea. So how are we doing on all those levels? In combating all these other isms? Uh-huh. Poorly. We're getting there. We're making progress, but like in the same sense like we're doing with racism, we aren't we are near where we need to be right now. But the, I think the conversations are being had. I, I don't know if I'd agree, Che. I think like the the conversations and the legislations over the past fifty years since the civil rights movement, I would argue have created a lot of momentum behind mm-hmm. other movements. Mm-hmm. Like the, the the gay rights movement has probably been the most effective in terms of quick, quick generational social change, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Um, You go from where we were even when we were growing up to now LGBTQ marriage being totally accepted and and a plurality of Americans of all walks of life accepting that, right? That same level of momentum hasn't happened Mm -hmm, around um, anti-Black racism. And I think that's, that's part of the the issue when it comes to kind of trying to bundle a lot of these issues together is that you kind of, you miss the mark in some ways and we need to be, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not not saying that's what you're saying, but we need to be precise and focused on the immediate task at hand, which is anti-black racism. 
And I agree with that. And I'm not saying, you know, every, you know, it has to be a, you know, a one size fits one approach, you know, like a one of one approach to targeting racism. But I, I think a lot of times in large, you know, conversations about sexism, it's just about white women or a lot of times about racism. It's just talking about black men and black men's experience. So in, in order to target all of these things, you have to dig deeper into how racism affects certain people, how sexism affects certain people. So diving deeper it's supposed to, into a multifaceted approach as opposed to a, a single facet. Now, you guys might be interested in knowing that your sisters are a lot more pessimistic about the end of racism than you are, but they're much more focused on solutions that will help us not only survive, but thrive beyond just conversations. For example, the whole question of if you accept the fact that racism is here to stay, which this quote certainly seems to uh, suggest. And then there's a book by my friend who's now deceased, uh, Derek, Professor Derek Bell, Faces at the Bottom of the Well. And then the subtitle is The Permanence of Racism. If you accept the fact that racism is permanent, then what do you do in the meantime? So they're, they're kind of in the, in the meantime preachers. So you guys are talking about going to heaven to find a better lifestyle there. Right. That's the difference. What's up with that? Well, you know, we're, we're um, you know, the stone has been rolled away and there's a, there's a, there's a Sunday morning. Look, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think that I, I would like to think that racism in the way that we know it is not permanent. In the U.S., I think in every society there will be prejudice, there will be bias, and that's that's human nature, right? I think to get to a place where it's not permanent, I think there needs to be a serious reckoning with the truths of history, right? A lot of countries in Africa and um, Central America have what's called truth and reconciliation commissions, and it's very common in post-conflict societies to have these kinds of formal bodies established that can help people process all of what they've experienced and, and reframe a national narrative. In South Africa, they had quite a bit of it in, in East Timor. We didn't have that after the Civil War, right? So, I mean, I think like having some formalized truth and reconciliation is going to be a, a big step. But then I also think it's legislation too. We can't like divorce the legislation aspect of this. The fact that the Voting Rights Act has been chipped away since Shelby versus Holder, I think, is a place where progress needs to be made. I think when it comes to policing, there's a lot you can do with with the power of legislative action. So there's more to be done, but I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a pessimist. Yeah, neither would I. I think Again, like, will there always be, you know, remnants of racism and sexism and homophobia? Absolutely. But if if people are committed to, you know, doing the work piece by piece, you know, and I think a lot of times, again, people try to bite off more than they can chew in these conversations. And in terms of legislation, you know, we're going to change everything, you know, like if every generation does piece by piece and has trust in the generations that, that come after them, then it'll be, you have to pass the baton, you know, you have to, you have to be intentional in, in the work that you're doing. And obviously hindsight is twenty twenty. like to say, oh, I should have let this one do this. But I think like everybody just to do, to do their share and to stay in their lane, but, you know, to make sure that, you know, that the lanes are, are keep on pushing forward. Now you two have brothers who, as I described, are 20 years younger than you. And Jania, you have two young boys, your children, my grandchildren. Do you see any difference now than what uh, we had to go through when you were 20 or 18 or 19? It's, It's an interesting time to ask that question, right? As we're still in the Trump era. So I think all of our worlds have been upended a bit within the last four years and what we've seen with the current leadership in our country. But put that aside, I I still think the same themes are around, right? They're just manifested in different ways. So we still are dealing with equity issues and who has access to what, and particularly in the education space, right? So when I was 18 or 20, 
obviously I went to one of, I went to Barnard, a very prestigious institution. And I was cognizant of the fact that I was this young girl from North, coming from North schools, feeling that I wasn't going to have the chops that it took to survive in that area and in that environment. But I quickly realized that I actually knew a lot more than I thought. And I was able to not just survive, but I thrived and graduated with honors. I came into that environment feeling sort of like the underdog because I did not have access to AP courses in my high school, which put me at a disadvantage in a lot of respects. And because, again, on paper, people like me were not always supposed to do well in those settings. So I think the same concerns exist for my kids, right? Especially if they continue their education and I plan to keep them in continuing their education in Newark. I'm going to always have to be cognizant of what they're lacking and what access they're missing and how to offset that and supplement it in whatever ways possible. That's just one example. I mean, I could talk for days, right? The fact that mm-hmm. I recognize that I have boys and Black boys, that's very different experience than being a Black woman. Not to say that my Black woman experience has been an easy road, and we could do a whole other podcast on that too. But I'm, I'm cognizant of the fact that my boys are inching closer, especially my oldest, who's eight. He's inching closer to that stage where he's going to be perceived less and less as cute and more and more as a threat. And those are going to be some different conversations that I'll have to have with him than what you and mommy had with us when we were that you know younger. Camille, what do you say as an auntie and as a big sister? Uh, as an auntie and a big sister, I definitely, there's a, this is going to sound weird, but there's a, a, a tiny piece of my heart that is in constant mourning for my Black men for my dad, for my uncles, for my brothers, and now for my nephews, because I know what they will face throughout their life. It doesn't get easier as you guys get older. I still worry about you when you have to travel, daddy. I worry about the boys. I worry about Justy and Jojo. I just, it's not a a topic I'm comfortable talking about because I think because I've seen so much violence on television when it comes to our men, that I don't know how to fully express what I feel other than young black boys will always be perceived as cute until they reach that magic number. I don't know what it is, but they go from being cute to being a threat. And that's when the worry kind of sets in. And I'm thankful that you and my brothers and my nephews have a village around them to uphold them support them, talk to them, be a sounding board for them, you know, be their protection, be their love when they need it. It's a really uncomfortable subject for me, just being honest. Final thought. Your mother is Jamaican. I'm African-American. Their mother was African-American. So the option is not there. But you all are capable of having a dual citizenship should you decide to exercise that. And with that, you might want to go somewhere. I just want to read a little something here from the uh, from the faces at the bottom of the well where that was discussed. This is mid-conversation with a man named Simple while he was in the taxi driven by Simple. A black Camelot is not necessarily what you'd get I won. Look at Haiti and any numbers, any number of black of African countries. I know all that, Simple conceded. Still a homeland, even a place I can never go to, makes me feel better about who I am and where I am. We were just talking about symbols. Guess a homeland for America's black folks. Well, that's the biggest symbol of all. Now, now for you, with, with that dual passport, you could make it more than a symbol. You could go somewhere and travel and and virtually be somebody else. Did you ever think about that? Um, I think, well, we've both had conversations about getting, you know, dual citizenship in Jamaica, but at least from, I think I can speak for both of us, that it, it wouldn't be, you know, to, to run from America and to, you know, to be a part of this, you know, utopian, you know, black society, because there's problems in Jamaica as well, you know, that and our grandparents made it, you know, very clear to us that, like, that there, there, there's a lot of issues in terms of crime and, and in terms of class there in Jamaica. So I think if I was to get it, it would be 
to to have a better understanding of you know what our mother and grandparents and uncles and aunts went through in Jamaica, it wouldn't be to you know to flee the United States or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously, like I, I I intend to have a career outside the U.S. Regardless, I don't I don't think it's towards the the means of fleeing from whatever's happening here. I think there's there's great parts about the United States and there's great parts about Jamaica, there's great mm-hmm, parts about mm-hmm. countries in Africa, but I don't think in any any case you're going to find an area without problems, without systemic mm-hmm. problems. Well, we could go on and on and on. I have a mountain of other questions. I want to thank you guys for being who you are and for uh, telling it like it is. So, any final comments? Thank you for being our dad, and thank you for helping us understand who we are. And because of that, I love who I am. And on that note, I want to thank you for a stimulating conversation. You guys have educated me about yourselves and uh, in in part about... uh, my daughter, stuff I didn't know. So uh, I'm impressed with both of you. Thank you very much. Bye. Love you. Love you too. Thank you for having me. Love you too, Daddy. Love you too. Thanks, Daddy. Look what we have here. First of all, I am a very proud father because I have four articulate, bright, patient young people who I believe are well-equipped to deal with whatever we have. But there is a difference between my daughters and my sons. I didn't know this. My daughters who are older have said, yes, racism is permanent, but we are comfortable in dealing with it. But what they have said is that we are equipped because we have a counter-narrative to what's out there coming from the white supremacists, from the racists. My sons, on the other hand, say, well, we see change. We see conversation. We see everybody from Prince Harry on down to Junius's firm to Che's friends. They're having the conversation. They're much happier to see that and don't think that racism is indeed something that can't go away. Now, this can be explained because my daughters are older. They've been out here. They know what's going on. Maybe that will happen with my young boys. Maybe they won't. Maybe it's because they have walked down different pathways, met different people. Their schooling has been different. Maybe, maybe, maybe. But the thing they have in common is that narrative. My boys, too understand the narrative, the narrative of liberation, if you will. Let's talk about that so we can be clear. First of all, the doctrine of white supremacy has run its course from slavery up to today because of its ability to dominate the public narrative through lies, half-truths, threats, or rumors. The only way to deal with that is to have a counter-narrative, which is a narrative of liberation. We are who we are, and we're proud of it. So Jania and Camille can talk about developing counter-institutions to the institutions of racism. So it really doesn't matter whether you say it's going to be here or not. We're comfortable with who we are. Junius and Che, we know who we are. We opt for conversation. It might work, it might not, but we are who we are and we're proud of it. The other thing that I'm very proud of in hearing them talk about is where they got that. (laughs) They got that from their mother and their father. Because we taught them who they are and to be proud of the fact that We have an African heritage, which is set forth here in the United States of America. They have a a healthy sense of self, 
of who they are as people. And can't nobody take that from them. I suggest that as African-Americans, we can't make it without this healthy sense of self, whichever road we take. So I'm just very glad to have participated in their education and will continue to do so. And I expect they will pass it on as well. Jania to her children. I will contribute. My sons will contribute. Her sister will contribute. With that in mind, maybe we can expect some other to con- others to contribute. What kind of work have our friends who are Caucasian been doing on themselves to rid themselves of that false narrative? The next time we come together, which will be the last Wednesday in December, I will have four other people. Two white people, my friends, who are closer to my age, and two white young people. We're going to get them to talk about racism as well. Maybe ask them some of the same questions, maybe some different ones. Maybe they'll have a solution that I'm not well aware of. Finally, I just want to say thank you to all the folks who've helped us out here. You'll see a little behind the scenes of everything's political coming up. And there's one person out there who said, well, I really don't want to talk about this because it's too painful to talk about the permanence of racism. Well, you can see from listening to my daughters how healthy they are, how optimistic they are. And both sets of children can say, Lord, I ain't no ways tired. I come too far from where I started. Nobody said the road would be easy, but I don't believe he brought me this far to leave me. I'm leaving you right now. This is Junius Williams with Everything's Political. See you next time because a black man's work is never done.